number of years ago, I was on a flight. I was coming home from uh, Belize after speaking there for a couple of weeks. And a few minutes after getting on the plane, I sat down on my seat, and the guy next to me um, starts talking to me. <laughs> now, I don't pay big bucks to fly so that some stranger can talk to me, you know? Um, it's just not where I want to be having conversation, especially calm, small talk. I'm not a fan of small talk ever, especially not in a, a confined tube. And I don't know what or how, but within a few minutes of us talking, the topic of Mennonites came up. And I'm like, oh boy. And then he asked the question that I've been asked many times, and I'm sure you've been asked uh, as well. And it's the famous question, what is a Mennonite? Now, I love that question, especially when I'm in a place like that, because my answer always gets me out of having to have long conversation. My answer simply is this, and it was to that person at that time, I said, this flight is not long enough to tackle that. And I faced the front, and I'm like, done, but he wasn't done. Well, today, we are tackling the topic of Anabaptists, and guess what? This series is not long enough. Um, we could have a year-long series on this, and part of the struggle with Anabaptist conversation and Mennonite conversation is there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, roads that have gone off the original trail. And so now to try to tackle it all in one um, sermon series, impossible, but we want to do our best. We call ourselves an Anabaptist church. And what I want to do, and I'm hoping that I can do in this sermon series, and then that's why we really need you to come out to the course this coming weekend, is I want to talk to us a little bit of an overview in this series about what are the Anabaptist beliefs. And so you're going to have to forgive me today. I have to stay to my notes, because if I don't, uh, we're going to be here for too long. But in order for us to really cover the topic of Anabaptists, we need to go back in history. And if you're a student of history, and if you enjoy history, you're going to enjoy this, I hope. But we need to go way back into history, to when Jesus was born. Jesus came into this earth and established the church. Now, the church has a long and complex, beautiful and ugly history. We need to just acknowledge that. And when Jesus came on the scene as a, as a child born he was born into the, to the time when Rome was the world power. He was born during the reign of Caesar Augustus, according to Luke chapter 2, verse 1. At this point, Rome, the Roman dynasty was already very corrupt. Lots of infighting, lots of struggles, power struggles, and it was, it was just a bit of a zoo, very rotten from the inside. Rome believed in this idea that it was their way or no way. And they would eliminate anyone they felt who was a threat to their rule. So you can only imagine the complexity of Jesus starting to talk about a kingdom. That he was coming to build a kingdom. In John chapter 18, Jesus is having a conversation with, with Pontius Pilate shortly before his execution. And Pontius Pilate immediately picked up on kingship language. John 18, 36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, 
my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And look at Pilate's response in verse 37. He says, you are a king then. It's this language that immediately resonated with Pilate because having tension and and conflict with another kingdom was not something Rome was interested in doing. You see, Rome won by killing, and Jesus' kingdom will win by dying. This approach, and I want you to hear that, Rome was about winning by killing. They conquered. They they killed their enemies. Jesus' kingdom was established by his example by dying. And I want you to hear this because this is a picture of the Anabaptists who were not even thought of at that time, who the Anabaptists and their view of church, their view of kingship, their view of what it looked like to follow Jesus. The early Anabaptists or the early followers of Jesus believed in one God, monotheism. And going back now to the time of Rome, this creates exclusion language. Rome believed in many gods, and Rome had no issue bringing in other conquered you know, nations that they conquered. They had no issue bringing in those gods into their belief system. Rome was you know, pagan. They wouldn't have been called that back then, but they believed in many gods. Now, the Jewish, the, the Jewish tradition, and then obviously the Jesus followers believed in one God. So this now created exclusion. You can't incorporate a belief system that excludes all other beliefs. And this would create tension immediately between the the Jewish people at that time, but now also those who were Jesus followers. Now I want you to understand that who we're talking about here is mostly, um, at this time in Rome especially, were Gentile Christians. Okay? And so they... The Rome couldn't incorporate this belief system into their thing. And so this exclusion language also impacted citizenship. Why? Because Christians were not willing to pledge allegiance to Caesar or to Rome. And so over time, they found themselves, due to this exclusion, they found themselves having to go into hiding. And the minute that someone is in hiding, the minute someone isn't public about everything, rumors begin to float about what they are doing in secrets. And some of the rumors at that time, it was that rumored that Christians were cannibalists, that Christians ate human flesh and drank human blood. Now, why would they think that? That all comes to the misunderstanding of communion. When we take and we eat the body and the blood of Christ and drink the blood of Christ, so this was a rumor that was quickly circulated. It was also rumored that Christians hated humanity. Why would the Romans think this? Well, because Christians wouldn't buy food that had been offered to idols. And so therefore, this impacted the economy. And if you're doing something that destroys the economy, clearly you don't love people. And Christians were soon seen as the enemies of the state. Therefore, they were hunted, they were tortured, and many of them were killed. And what happened is mind-boggling. The faith continued to grow. 
Christians during this time continued to love each other. They took in the poor. They took in the outcast. They adopted children, those that Rome society had thrown out. Christians were modeling the life of Jesus and doing for the outcasts the same as what Jesus had done. And it is believed that the 4th century is the worst century for persecution of Christians. The persecution they endured is hard to even describe. And yet at that time... It is believed that there were between 3 to 5 million Christians in Rome. And then something significant happens. Constantine comes on the scene as Rome's emperor around AD 306. Now I want to be very clear right from the get-go. I am no fan of Constantine, so forgive my bias. He was a political genius though. And this is something he recognized almost immediately, that he could use Christians to unite his kingdom, his emperor, his, his, the Roman emperor, uh, empire. Rome at that time was divided between east and west, and so Constantine wanted to unite all of Rome again. And one day Constantine claims that he had a vision at Malvian Bridge, and here his vision included this. He has a vision of a cross in the sky with the sign that read, in this sign you will conquer. And this, is, this was his uh, version of the story anyway. Now I believe, personally I believe Constantine was making all of this up. Why? For two reasons. One, because he was looking for a way to unite his people. And what better tool to use than a supernatural event? Constantine was onto it. And you could say it worked. And so he used this image of a, of a cross in the sky and, and this words that this under this sign you will conquer. The second reason I believe that this is not true is because this is the very first time Christians will pick up the sword to fight. Up to this time, Christians had never killed under the image of Jesus. And yet now Constantine is using Christianity as a means through which he will inspire his soldiers to conquer land, villages, people by force and by death. And for the first time in the history of our faith, the cross did not represent the death of Jesus for our salvation the cross now represented a sign of political power. Constantine leads Rome to tolerate Christianity. In AD 13, or 313, sorry, the Edict of Milan makes Christianity an accepted religion among other religions in Rome. Rome had a lot of religion. In 325, Constantine resides over the Council of Nicaea. Now, I want to stop here for a moment, because in a little bit, I want to read to us this, this, the Nicene Creed. But you need to know, Constantine never, ever really declared himself a Christian. One year before he died, he um, received baptism. But Constantine continued to worship all other gods, which makes this creed interesting and I would definitely argue a political tool. So let me read to you. I'm going to read the entire thing. It's a little bit long. But I want you to listen to 
this creed, and I want you to listen. What is missing? What is missing in the creed? Here's the first part about God. We believe in God and one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all, of all things visible and invisible, about Jesus. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became, he became incarnated by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scripture. He ascended to heaven. He is seated and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And now regarding the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sin. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. That's the Nicene Creed, and my guess is most of you have heard that before. Now let me ask for a moment, what's missing? And I, I wish we could take more time. The clock will be our enemy today. But what's missing in this creed? And I, I know we don't have time now for you to throw out answers, but the obvious is missing. There is nothing in this creed about Christian discipleship or Christ-like behavior. It's simply a theological and doctrine statement, which is incredibly important, and we would line up with most of it. Yet in this creed, there is nothing about what it looks like to be a Jesus follower. Why is that? Because the cross at this time is no longer used to draw people to Jesus. The cross is now used as a sign of military force. Political unity in the name of Christ. The marriage of the state, church and state has happened. Christendom has started. And this, in my opinion, is one of the most devastating events of our faith. What is Christendom? Basic definition, very, very basic definition of Christendom is this. Basic definition is that Christendom is the politicized church, the militant church. This is where we get the concept of a Christian nation from. Prior to this time, prior to Constantine, the church, Jesus followers, would have never, ever spoken about a Christian nation. It was never on Jesus' radar, and it was definitely never also on the early church's radar. Then in 380, Christianity became the authorized official religion in Rome under a different emperor, and the church went from being the ones persecuted to being in charge. And now they had government influence, they would receive tax breaks, they experienced wealth, churches had their buildings built by the government, no longer are they forced to hide. So it is easy to see why Christianity and why Constantine are celebrated. However, 
this led to massive corruption. My personal bias, again, I think Christians struggle to know what to do with political power and Christ's power. It's easy to not depend on one. Churches became incredibly wealthy, powerful, and extremely corrupt. Listen to how Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher, describes Christendom. Christendom, he says, is an effort of the human race to go back to walking on all fours. To get rid of Christianity. To do it navishly under the pretext that this is Christianity. Claiming that it is Christianity perfected. The Christianity of Christendom takes away from Christianity the offense, the paradox, etc. And instead of that, introduces probability, the plainly comprehensible. That is, it transforms Christianity into something entirely different from what it is in the New Testament. Yea, into exactly the opposite. And this is the Christianity of Christendom of us men. In the Christianity of Christendom, the cross has become something like a child's hobby horse and trumpet. Wow. But I would say amen. Why do I share this? Why all this talk about Christendom and, and that? Because I believe Christendom is at the heart of the radical movement, the radical formation. Um, uh, yeah, the radical formation, because Reformation. This is why the Anabaptists started and, and why they decided they could no longer be part of the Catholic Church. Now, there's a lot of triggers for the Anabaptists that caused them to do what they did. But this was at the heart, I believe. Now, as ugly, though, as our church history is, with all the brokenness, with all the corruption, with all of the spiritual abuse and the misuse of Christ's name, there have always been those who remained true to Jesus. Now, I need you to fast forward with me now about 1,100 years. A date that you probably know well is October 31st, 1517. It just passed recently, the anniversary of this date. Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk, found himself more and more at odds with what he read in Scripture and what the Catholic Church was doing. They didn't line up for him. His main issue was the practice of indulgence. Now, if you don't know what indulgence is, indulgence was, is the idea that you can buy salvation for someone else. So grandma and grandpa died, and you're not sure if they're in heaven. You go to the church, you throw in a ton of cash, and the priest will absolve grandma and grandpa of sin. This is how an image of how corrupt the church had become. Luther had all kinds of other things that he wrestled with. For example, he wanted to give Scripture back to the church. He didn't believe that Scripture should remain only for the priest. And many of them would then obviously never present the accurate, uh, accuracy of Scripture. They would present their biased version of it. So he nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg church. But Luther would fall short. He did not go far enough. He only wanted to transform or reform the church. In 1522, another name you should know, Ulrich Swingley. 
He leads a movement in Switzerland. And Zwingli is teaching a group of students. And some of his students include none other than Conrad Grebel, Felix Mons, and George Blaurock. Now again, as radical as Swingley's teaching was, his students were dissatisfied. They didn't believe that just the church needed to be reformed. They believed a radical formation, reformation was needed. These students wanted to establish a Christianity according to its roots. They believed that Jesus' followers should live similar to Jesus. They wanted to line themselves up with what they saw in the book of Acts, and they would argue that what they saw in the church was far from what they saw in Acts and in the Gospels. They wanted to focus on discipleship. This was something that wasn't needed in the Catholic Church. Why? Because when you were born, you were immediately baptized. And baptism was not a reflection of a declaration of being a Jesus follower. It was much more of a citizenship card. You now were part of the church, and you now were part of the state. The church and state were one, and these students didn't see the church in that way through what Jesus taught. As a matter of fact, just for emphasis sake, these early Anabaptists saw Constantine as the great dragon. And when these students understood that Swingley was not willing to go as far as they felt they needed, they began to meet in secret. And at this meeting, at a meeting on January 21st, 1525, Conrad Grebel baptized George Blaurock in Zurich, Switzerland. And Blaurock then baptized the rest of the believers. They did not see this as rebaptism, because this was the first time any of them had been baptized upon the confession of faith in Jesus. However, this is not how it was seen by those outside of that group. Others saw this as rebaptism. And this is where we get our word Anabaptist from. So the Anabaptist movement was born at that moment. It was a name that was bestowed on these followers of Jesus, not by themselves, but by others. What they were doing, they felt, was rejecting their previous baptism. This would have, this then set in motion a chain of events something that is often called the Radical Reformation. And again, I don't have time, but within the Reformation, there are really three Reformations. And you can study that on your own. In 1527, Michael Settler, another name you should know, he works and he chairs a committee, and this committee writes up what's called the Schleinheim Confession. Schleinheim referring to Switzerland. So the Switzerland Confession. The Schleinheim Confession covers seven articles. And we'll take a quick look at them in a little bit. But in this, they wanted to give a brief overview of what they believed. So let's look at them really quickly. First, not surprising, baptism. They were very clear that baptism must follow repentance. It makes sense 
that they saw the need to, um, sorry, I'm in the wrong spot. They believed that repentance was necessary upon the confession of their faith in Jesus and, and receiving that Jesus had died for their sins. And this had to be done by the individual. No one could do this for you. And they would have used Peter's sermon in Acts as an example when the people cried out and said, what must we do? And they said, you must be baptized. It came after conversion. Infant baptism was not baptism. The ban, the second one, excommunication. And this seems harsh to us today, this kind of language. But considering the church's you know, the, the corruption within the church and all that they had experienced, it makes sense that they saw the need to remove from their midst those who continued to live in sin. So a person who lived in sin was warned twice in secret and the third time publicly disciplined. They would have used Matthew, Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18 as a guide for this. The breaking of bread, communion. At that time they believed... To participate in communion, you had to be baptized. You could not participate in communion without baptism. Again, this makes perfect sense considering what they were going through and the system that they came out of. It was also important for them at that time to realize that Anabaptists were by now being killed for their belief. And so for someone to come into your midst, participate in communion without ever having been baptized... Likely that person wasn't serious about their faith, and more than that, they were probably a spy. And so the Anabaptists felt that it was necessary that if you wanted to be part of the community, you had to have received baptism. A key difference here with the, with the communion that they had at that time is that they did not believe the real body or the blood of Christ was present in the sacrament. You were not drinking and eating the body of Christ. Communion was in remembrance of what Christ had done. Separation from evil. The community of Christians was to have no association with those who remained in dis disobedience. They believed that there, should be, there could be no association between the wicked worlds. This included work, meetings, church services, civil affairs. All evil was to be resisted. Pastors in the church... They were to faithfully preach, carry out the teaching, discipline, the ban, prayer, and sacraments. The sword. Violence must not be used in any circumstances. They believe that the, the way of nonviolence is patterned after the teachings, of, teachings and life of Jesus. Christians should not pass judgment in a worldly dispute. Christians could not be in politics or court, and Christians could never go to war. The oath, the last one. No oath should be taken because Jesus prohibited the taking of oaths and swearing. Jesus taught that we should let our yes be yes and our no be no. Testifying, they said, was not the same as swearing. When a person bears testimony, they are testifying about the present whether it is, it, whether it be good or evil. These were the seven articles. And as you listen to them, I'm sure many of you here are like, oh, some of that sounds somewhat familiar. And you can see how the Mennonites have applied these 
in different ways over the years. Now what's important for us to remember is that this confession that we just read through, this confession and others were written in a time when Anabaptists were literally running for their lives. So at the heart of these confessions was a sense of protection and giving clarity about who they were. They couldn't sit down over a long period of time or in large groups and process this because if they did that, they would likely be captured and killed. As a matter of fact, a few months after Michael Settler helped with writing this confession, he was sentenced to death. As part of his punishment, sorry to be graphic, as part of his punishment, a piece of his tongue was cut off to prevent him from speaking. And on his way to the place of execution, hot tongs were used up to five times the ripped skin from his body. And finally, his mangled body was tied to a ladder and pushed onto a fire. And as the ropes of his hands burned, it is said that he raised his two forefingers of his hand, giving the secret signal to his fellow believers that he remained faithful. Two days later, his wife Margarita was drowned for her faith nearby. The Anabaptists, they preached what they read in scriptures and they lived it out. Especially, they especially held to the teachings in the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 to 7. For example, they would read, for example, of Matthew 4, 5, 43 and on. When Jesus says, you have heard that it is said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He, ca- he causes his son, the son, his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, you, are not even the taxpayers doing that? And if you greet only people If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What I want you to understand, and this is so part of our mindset here today as a church, that when the Anabaptists read this, this wasn't something only to form our doctrine. This wasn't something that was only to be part of our theology thinking. This was how we were to live. This was to shape our life in every place. They used this, and they would have used verses like this to determine how they were to live. No story of an Anabaptist martyr probably captures the imagination more than that of Dirk Willems. Dirk was caught, he was tried, convicted as an Anabaptist in those later years of harsh um, Spanish rule in the Netherlands. He escaped by letting himself out of the window of the castle with ropes made out of 
out of sheets and rags. He dropped himself onto the ice outside of the castle. Seeing him escape, a palace guard pursued him as he fled. Now Dirk had lost a lot of weight due to the rations that he was on as a prisoner. And the guard, who was heavier, pursued him. Dirk crossed the thin ice of a pond, the Hondegat, safely. And the guard, however, broke through. Hearing the guard's cries for help, Dirk had a decision to make. Obey the teachings of Jesus or save his own skin. So Dirk turned around and he rescued the guard. Instead of receiving gratitude for what he'd done, he was seized, he was led into captivity, and later he was burned alive. Dirk didn't read the words that we just read in the Gospels. Dirk didn't read the words of Jesus to love our enemies as something to do when it was easy or when it wouldn't cost him anything. And as an Anabaptist, he understood that he needed to line up his life with Jesus no matter the cost. This was at the heart of the Anabaptist movement. Not Christendom. Not power through the church. But power through a transformed life by Jesus Christ. Stuart Murray, if you want to read a great book, um, The Naked Anabaptist. Not sure why he called it that, but it's interesting gets you seeing it on the shelf, you're like, eh. He explains some of the confusion with all the different traditions, and he outlines it, I think, well, and I want to wrap up by reading this from him. He says, the Anabaptist tradition has never been uniform. So you're not going to find a statement. Okay, so be careful with that. That it's, It's too broad. From the earliest years, there were different emphases and divergent practices. Anabaptists today will interpret the Anabaptist vision in ways that make sense in our various cultures and contexts. But, but there are fundamental, foundational insights, deep convictions, and enduring values that have shaped this tradition for which the first Anabaptists were willing to die, in which... All who accepted the label Anabaptist recognize and want to embody. I think that captures it well because you have the Hutterites, the Mennonites, the, the Amish, and, and the list goes on. And then within the Mennonites, oh my goodness, you have a range of different ways of expressing. But here in our church as well, with the Schleinheim Confession and with other beliefs, but I think really at the heart of what we believe is that the church is not political, we would line up with these early Anabaptists and their view that it's about us as a community living out and expressing as an expression of Jesus, hence our mission statement. So that, folks, I'm actually proud of myself, wow, wow. (laughs) sorry, just the inner thought came out. Um, That was an overview. Um, And so again, I want to encourage you to come out this weekend. Jake Enns from the EMC Church is going to dive in much deeper. But I want to ask you now as you leave, 
Maybe you're like, well, I'm not sure I define myself as an Anabaptist, and we're not here to push anything on you. We're just simply saying we are an Anabaptist church, which governs how we do things. And it has definitely played a significant role over the last few years through all that we've gone through. But as individuals, I want you to ask yourself the simple question that every Anabaptist would have asked themselves, and that is, does my life line up with the teaching and the example of Jesus? See, some other traditions like to jump over Jesus and get to Paul, and they view Jesus through Paul's pistols. The Anabaptists would very much say, well, Paul is good, but let's first understand Jesus, and then we'll read Paul through the lens of Jesus. This is huge, folks. If you didn't know that, write it down. Because so many of our other traditions would first go, wow, this is what Paul says, and then that explains what Jesus did. Anabaptists would look at that completely the opposite. So I want to ask you as you leave to consider, does your life... And I should clarify now, sorry, some of you are looking at me confused. I believe an Anabaptist would believe that Jesus and Paul were saying the same thing. All right, good. I want to encourage you as you go from here to really, really ask yourself, does my life, not just my church, does my life line up with the teachings of Jesus? And if you want some reading for the week, Every single day, read through the Sermon on the Mount. That would have been a passage of Scripture that the Anabaptists would have known inside and out. What Jesus tells the people to do in the Sermon on the Mount is what he is telling us to do today. Alrighty, you guys have been awesome. Wide awake still, listening. Thank you very much. Those of you online, we're glad you joined in. Now go and live for Christ in all that you do. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you.